going to be talking about faith lived out, real and practical. And um, we at Open Door declare the gospel is that Christ died for our sins and he rose again. And that when we trust in him alone, the Bible says that we now have a life of faith grounded in Christ. And as we trust in Christ, we inherit this life of faith. And we actually, I brought the ball up here to kind of represent faith in our life, okay? And it's this new thing where we're trusting God for what we cannot see. And we kind of hold it and reposition it and check it out and try to figure it out. We try to get our bearings with it, okay? And then also in the Christian faith, we see other people. Dave, you want to hold that for me? We see other people um, hold this ball of faith. And uh, when we see them hold it, we see them go through things that they have to trust God for, like significant health issues, or they have significant marital issues, or you name it. And then when we see faith in their life, we're like, Lord, please don't make me trust you for what they have to go through. In other words, please help that to never come across my path. How many of you guys have ever prayed or thought that? Okay? You look up here real quick. And then we've got, uh, we've got other people as they interact with their faith. When they get the ball thrown at them of faith, they duck it. They like sidestep it and they move away from it. And uh, there are others who as they interact with their new faith... They go through seasons of shakiness and doubt and questions and sometimes even drop the ball of faith. And um, we see that a lot of times in the church. And then we get the ball of faith in our hands and we learn to relate to God like this. And uh, there's only one way and that's through Jesus Christ. But once we have faith in Christ, there's a lot of different people interacting on a journey of faith with God and their life may look more like this. Or like this, or like this, or like this. And we oftentimes take our approach, we do something weird. We take our faith journey, and we say, that's it. Therefore, this is your faith journey. And we start judging other people by our personal faith journey where we're trusting the Lord for things. The truth is, what I have found is, pastoring here at the church, and even as we went north, I found that people do a lot of weird stuff. And they see a lot of weird things in this journey of trying to interact with their faith in Christ. Have you guys identified that or experienced that? Okay, so what I found is that people do weird stuff with their faith when they're not grounded in God's word as they try to live out their faith. People do weird stuff with their faith when they're not grounded in God's word with faith. So for today, we're going to pick it up in Hebrews chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles. And uh, you guys can see that there's fill in the blanks, so if you need a pen, there's pens in the back. But we're going to start off with letting the Bible define what we're talking about when we talk about faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we don't have to make up our own definition. The writer of Hebrews says it. He says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So you have it written up there. If you guys want to write it across your outline, just write it across the top. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. It's basically trusting God and his promises and his word for things that we can't see. Okay? And in verse 2, he goes on to say, this is what the ancients were commended for, and he gives us a, the most basic elementary example 
of what it means to trust God for what we cannot see. And yet it's probably one of the most polarizing, one of the most uh, controversial ideas, top three or four, in our Christian faith. Check it out, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So to help us understand what this whole trusting God for what you can't see is, he made it very clear how the universe got here. How does it say the universe got here? Somebody shout it. God's command. He spoke it into existence. So I'm just going to just say it out there. In our, our Christian circles, we try to blend what we call what we call science and cultural values and family values and God's word, and we come up with all sorts of weird hybrids of how we got here. But according to the text, the very first example he gives about what it means to live by faith or trust God for what we cannot see is that God spoke our universe into existence. That's what it says. If that's what, that's what it says, I want to encourage you to think through, are you applying faith to how we got here? Okay? So there are times when what we think and what the Bible says disagree. And so I want to challenge you guys today to take your idea of faith, maybe perhaps the faith you've built, and make sure it's according to God's word. And if it's not, I'm going to ask you guys, to actually drop the faith that you've been expressing. Maybe perhaps take your views on things and submit them to God's word. And then let's get a clean approach to what the Bible teaches about faith. I did that because, like I said, we all represent all sorts of cultural, family, personal sin, baggage that we bring to our idea of faith. And we're going to see that today. So we're going to learn, and I'm going to do a quick survey of kind of what the Bible kind of captures about faith, and then we're going to camp at the end of 11. We know this, that faith in the Bible, we teach that the Gospels that Christ died and rose again, and we declare that we are made right with God by grace through faith. So we are declared righteous in God's sight by God's grace, and we trust in his son, Jesus Christ, alone. Okay? So you cannot be declared righteous before God by works, but by faith in Christ alone. Bible also says in verse 6, you guys can see it, it says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we trust in Christ by faith to have our sins forgiven, but the Christian life is not then just doing a bunch of good things hoping to please God. In fact, if we're doing things that are right, but not trusting in the process or exercising our faith, it does not please God. So we can be super, super uh, cleaned up, whitewashed, got our act together, but unless we are expressing faith in the Lord, it's not something he has planned for us. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We covered last time I preached in Hebrews 10 that we can have assurance of our faith But that's meant to draw us closer to God. It's not meant to cause us to become arrogant. It's not meant to cause us to look down on people, to judge people. But our assurance of our faith is meant to cause us to have a deeper love-trust relationship with God and a deeper relationship 
with one another. And we saw that in Hebrews chapter 10. And then we also see in Scripture that faith is participatory. If you're familiar with the feeding of the 5,000, it's written in several accounts. But in short, there's a crowd of people. They're hungry. Disciples want to send them away. Jesus tells the disciples, you feed them. They realize this is an impossible task. And God uses the, the, the dinner or the meal of a young boy. We know that faith is participatory. God did an amazing thing. But I want to ask you this question. What young boy willingly gives up his lunch to this group of adults and somehow hopes that God's going to do a miracle? No. I've got boys in my house. They don't give up their lunch. Okay? And what I do know is this. This young boy participated, and I want you to think through what happened to his faith. As he participated, used his time, his talent, his treasures, gave it to the Lord, what do you think happened with his faith? You think his faith grew in the Messiah? Absolutely. And then lastly, kind of in our survey, we see that God cares about extraordinary faith, not extraordinary accomplishments. Why don't you just glance with me in verses 13 to 16. Verse 13, it says this, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, the heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So there you have it, that God was pleased with them because they did amazing things, right? What's the text say? God was pleased with them because they did amazing things. He was pleased with them because they trusted him to the end, and all these people were still living by faith when they died. Now, I personally pray so hard for God's provision or God to get me through this season or God would do this, but I can't imagine praying for something until the end of my life and somehow God's going, you trusted me until you took your last breath. That was the win. What? So we have to break our old way of thinking that God is more concerned about our accomplishments than our moment-by-moment, lifelong, love-trust relationship. Now, verses 3 to 31 are specific examples of Old Testament believers and on their faith journey. You might say, those are Old Testament people. What do they have to do with me? And uh, one of the things we're going to discover, we're going to be picking up in verse 32, is that your faith journey may feel differently than what you read here. You may even walk in the door here and feel like you're isolated and that your faith journey is different than everyone else around you. But there are common themes for every believer. It's been the same throughout the years. There's common themes that keep recoming up, that keep resurfacing. And what are we to do when we feel isolated or alone? I feel compelled to deal with this because every one of us, if you proclaim faith in Christ, you're on a faith journey and there are times where we feel isolated and alone. So our message today is going to help us understand what are the common themes of what we should be doing, how we should be responding, where should our mind go on this faith journey. There are going to be common threads that you see. 
So let's pick it up in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's start in verse 32. And then we'll read through 12, a couple of verses in 12. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we pray that today you would grow our faith, help us to understand and personalize and apply the truths here that you've given to us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have a pen, I want to give you that first point to kind of get you guys rolling. It's this. To remember in our Christian faith, there is nothing new or historically unusual in your faith journey. Verse 32 is a move from specific Old Testament believers to kind of a broader group of people. And we see that there are judges. We see that there are kings and prophets. There are patriarchs. There are widows. There are just kind of common Old Testament saints. And the list is very broad. And I think he leaves it broad so that we can understand that we maybe have a place in here. Verses 33 and 35, he talks about the stuff we like talking about. We see that some received victory in battle. Some survived in miraculous ways. Some were resurrected from the dead, and even some of them had weakness turned to strength. We like talking about those. That's good stuff. We like to see that. Like, we like to think of the widow having her, her, her child back to life again. Like, this is pretty neat stuff. But just as important as faith, victory in the faith, is 35 to 38. Because though not victorious on this earth... I think we can connect with the reality of hardship that these people were facing. In verses 35 to 38, they captured torture, chains, imprisonment, mockings, floggings, and death by stoning. And you may think, man, that's got, you know, maybe one for each person. But in Jeremiah 20, we realize that this is Jeremiah. He's talking about a guy who experienced these exact things. Tradition tells us that Isaiah 
was the one sawn in two. And that Uriah the prophet in Jeremiah 26 was the one who was slain with a sword. And he goes on to say these people were destitute, which means without the most basic of basic needs. Food, water, shelter, clothes. They were without them. They were persecuted, mistreated, and homeless. And to give you an idea of what homelessness is, he gives you an idea and says they lived in deserts, in the mountains, in the caves, and I don't know why this sits, kind of sits with me, holes. They were living in holes. And again, we may glamorize holes when we think of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Holes were not something glamorous. These people who were trusting God for what they couldn't see were living in holes. And though this description may seem kind of other world for us, we all go to work, we live our lives, it may seem almost like fiction, like a book or something. It may seem like that in here, or maybe perhaps you come here and you feel like you're living an other world faith that somehow nobody else is going through what you're going through. I'm open to share a passage with you that will help you. I think it will encourage you. It says this, What has been, do- been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. So if you read this text so far, that this is what they experienced as they were trying to live out their faith, you can count on. History repeats itself. So do not be surprised when following Christ as you express your faith, you will experience, don't be surprised if these things surface in life around us. Nothing new under the sun. But if you're over here and you're finding yourself saying, man, I am alone in this. Don't ever believe the lie that what you're going through has never been experienced before. Don't ever believe that lie. In verse 38, it says the world was not worthy of him. These are people that they trusted the Lord, and what they were trusting the Lord for on earth didn't seem to pan out. And they couldn't even judge the effects or the, the faith of their own life by what they saw because they didn't experience the joy of receiving what they were trusting God for, Right? But it says the world was not worthy of them. And in verse 39, they were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. And 40 is a beautiful picture. It says that God had something better planned for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect or complete. So the Old Testament believers were on this side looking ahead to the Messiah who would come to rescue them from their sin and set things right. On this side of the cross, we look back to the Messiah, the one who died on the cross and rose again, and we look to him as the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And it says that we together, them looking ahead and us looking back, we have something better that only together that we would be made perfect or complete. And we're talking about those who are alive in Christ. Now, verse 1 says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is connected to what we just read. And this is a broad list of people with some pretty unusual circumstances. And I think God gave it to us to help us understand that no matter how bad life gets, how unusual you think your faith journey is, you're not alone. That many of you, many have gone before you and they've experienced anything that you have. And that we have believers from all ages, of all times, standing in a long lineup trying to be faithful to the Lord 
who've experienced what you've experienced. Just a, a brief shepherding moment, just a conversation. I want to encourage you never to believe that lie that what you're going through is unique. It is toxic to your Christian faith. If you think that you're alone and that you've, nobody's ever gone through what you've gone through, doubts start to set in and you will start to see your faith crumble. God gave us this rich history of people and what they trusted the Lord for so that we would know that we are not alone. And by faith in the Messiah, you and I together stand in a long line of people trusting God for some really hard things. I was reading this earlier to the, uh, the welcome class, but First Peter, he talks about this in First Peter chapter 1. He says, In all these great uh, trials you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So we know that these people were being refined, and we know that trials are God's tool to help us look forward to and refine us as we look forward to the return of Jesus. So that first point being is, remember, there is nothing new or unusual, historically unusual, about your faith journey. We'll see in the next part of verse 1, we all have to actively rid our lives of sin and flesh in this faith journey. Look at verse 1. It says, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and this sin that so easily entangles. It is shocking how fast crud builds up in the house. It's shocking. In fact, so much so, Anya and I developed an idea in our family that we basically keep like a milk crate, keep a bin or something like that in the back of each vehicle. And whenever we find something we're not using, we're not taking, you know, it's just sitting around, we actually tell one of the kids, haul it out to the car. And then when we get annoyed by the back of the car being full, we stop by Vinny's or Hidden Treasure or or, uh, Goodwill, and we have to, like, have an active conveyor belt getting stuff out of the house. How many of you guys feel like your children just have their pockets stuffed every time they come home, and you have no idea how stuff finds its way in your house? You identify with that one? Okay. So I have found that unless you actively get rid of stuff, your house will fill up. The text says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles us. So the word pictures throwing off things that hinder, even good things. If you've been living long enough, you recognize there are seasons where you cut out good things for better things. I've seen people quit good jobs for better jobs. I've seen people stop doing certain sports. I've seen people stop certain careers. I've seen people stop doing education, all of which are good and fine and great. But I've seen people stop things that are good that are hindering them from the best that God had for them. And he says this, he says, let's throw off things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles us. So when we talk about throwing off sin, it's an active participation and cooperation with God to oust sin. It's like pulling weeds and throwing them out in the curb, out in the road. It's like an active getting rid of. And there is no such thing as spiritual coasting here. 
There is no neutral ground of I am distracted or I'm just busy. In fact, the word picture here of letting us throw off everything, that, everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles us is this. If you would describe your life as coasting, distracted, or not actively throwing out sin, you are being entangled whether you know it or not. That is the reality of life. So he tells us to actively throw off, get rid of, and get it out. And scripture in Ephesians 4 says it this way. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, bitterness, that's ousting, pull those weeds, get them out. Rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So Paul in Ephesians captures that, but he talks about not grieving the Holy Spirit, get rid of these things, do some spiritual house cleaning. In this journey of faith, we all have to actively get rid of stuff that entangles us, that hinders us, and sin that fills our lives. Now, just like a normal house cleaning, you have to identify what needs to be cleaned. Most of us, we can make a beeline straight for the bathroom. Because that's the first thing usually that needs to be cleaned, right? In our spiritual lives, we have to do spiritual house cleaning. And there are times where we have to identify the filth or sin for what it is. So we usually just kind of like, to, it's just what's busy. Or it's my job. Or it's the internet. Or it's things, but actually we're called to actually call sin for what it is and recognize that your sin is against God. Next, in the spiritual house cleaning, we have to turn a cold back to it or repent from that sin and turn to the Lord. I'll never forget Mark Vanetta. He usually comes to the Saturday service, but he works up at Camp Iwana and he helps work with our living and light here. He talked about it this way. He says, when we have sin in our life, you can't mess around with it. You have to amputate it. And I thought that's a pretty graphic picture, but I think it's true that it's pretty accurate that in our spiritual house cleaning, we can't toy around with sin. Sin is deadly. And as believers in Christ, in this faith journey, we have to amputate that sin, turn from it, and turn to the Lord. And the last part of our spiritual house cleaning is we have to humble ourselves before the Lord. We have to submit to Him, and we have to trust in Him and receive his forgiveness that he provides through Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but in my Christian life, I have these things that keep popping back into my house. The sin that easily entangles seems like they're reoccurring themes. Is anybody with me on that one? Okay. I want to show you a short video clip that I think will help give you some tools uh, to understand how you're made and understand why is it that stuff keeps creeping in the door of your life, and why is it so hard to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. The Bible says that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are passed away, and that all things are become new. It sure doesn't seem like all things have become new for me. To start with, when I look at myself in the mirror, I look the same. That isn't really the part that bothers me. The part that bothers me is that I still seem to think the same, 
I seemed to keep making the same bad choices. All this was complicated and confusing until I began to see myself as a three-part being. I live in a body. I have a soul, but I am a spirit. My soul is my mind, will, and the emotional part of me. My soul is at the heart of what I believe and how I behave. My body is the part of me that is aware of the world around me. And my spirit, the new me, is the part of me that is aware of God. When the world around me is the only influence on what I think and what I feel and what I choose, it only makes sense that my beliefs and behavior would look like the old me and not the new me. The Bible calls this walking after the flesh. By flesh it doesn't mean my skin and the meat on my bones. The flesh is the selfish pursuit of the things of this world. What's the alternative? God has put his own spirit inside me, and he communicates with my spirit. The question is, am I listening with my soul? The input I get from the spirit of God is often diametrically opposed to the input I get from the world around me. For instance, God tells me I'm his child, and he supplies everything that I need according to his riches and glory. When I listen to the world around me, I believe and behave as if I have to strive and take to be important and have value. God is always speaking, and the world is always speaking. I need to choose to listen to what God says. And hopefully that gives you kind of a word picture of why things keep popping in your life and how you can actively participate with God and rooting out and actively throwing off the sin that so easily entangles. So you identify your beliefs and your behaviors that are not in line with the Holy Spirit and his word. And this is a lifelong process of ousting and getting rid of those things. We see at the end of verse 1, and you can write it in here, that endurance is the continual mindset of faith. We see it and it says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, the Christian life is like a race. And for those of you who don't run, I'm going to say it pretty simply here. They both have a start, the Christian life and an actual race. They both have a start. They both have a finish. They both require effort and discipline. The race is marked out ahead of time, both of them, by someone who's not the runner. And each has a reward at the end. And just like a race, we should expect that there are hard situations and that we are, it's needed that we hold a long-term end-of-life focus. And this goes against every part of our culture. It goes against everything that we're surrounded with. Because as culture, we like quick and easy. Give you an example. Your microwave died today. How long does it take you to replace it? We like quick and easy. In fact, Joel Salatin, he's a believer in Christ who lives out in Virginia. He's a farmer and he writes about culture. He says this, as a society, we are addicted to faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper. Watch when you go to the grocery store and when you shop. You want, and we are culturally ingrained with, faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper. Always. That's just part of, we're swimming in a culture of it. And I would add to that, easy. And endurance is to be the continual mindset of faith. 
and that the life of faith should be thought of as a race. And so if you're not sure what endurance is, here we go. Endurance is this. You can write it in there. It's the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Earlier you heard Chris Austin talk about Ozaki Christian School tries to produce grit. And this is really what it is. It's the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances. And that the longer we're walking in faith, we're called to have an endurance mindset that says, I can bear up under the Lord, and I can bear up, and I can, I can get through this with the Lord. Now, the believer's life is to be no 100, uh, short 100-meter sprint. It's a marathon, and difficulty is part of it. So my oldest is in uh, track this year. He was in cross-country, and now he's in track. How many of you guys have had a kid, a grandkid, and you've been to track meets at all? Put them up. So what I learned is not only kids have to have endurance, but parents, because the one this week was like six hours long. It was ridiculous. I didn't even, I came. He's like, Dad, it's going to be five hours till I run. I'm like, sorry, son, I'll see you at home. It was, was, I didn't have the endurance. But um, I showed up at Homestead last week, and Nate was down there, and and I walked in, and they were doing the 100-meter sprint. And with high school guys, there's all this testosterone built up inside. There's just... You can just see them, and you walk in, and to, to run 100 meters, I mean, it's explosive. There's just energy. And then they did the relay where they used to do a lap. But in a gym where there's only four courts wide, one lap, literally, they have so much velocity, they can't, they can't even stay in their lane. They're like fighting just to stay in their lane. They're running so hard. So I watched these boys, and then Nate, he ran a 1600, which is a one mile, and it's 10 laps around. And as I began watching these guys, I thought to myself, why are they running so slowly? I mean, what's, they look like they have anchors on them or something. Well, when they were finishing up, I realized a five-minute pace and a six-minute pace is not anchors. That's fast compared to most of us, right? But when I watched compared to the sprint, it sure seemed really slow. Now, in the, in the fall, he ran cross-country, and I used to watch him, and I run, but I'm not real fast. But I thought, man, Nate, you could surely run faster than that. But he was averaging like two and three minutes a minute faster than I can run for 3.1 miles. And so I realized the longer the race gets, the more endurance has to be there. How many of you guys have run the fish day race? Anybody? With None of you? There's three of us in the room. Well, you guys all know Port Washington to be a beautiful place until you're running its hills at fish day. And the summer heat with the hills, and now that I'm pushing 40, you start thinking about safety, and you start thinking about endurance, and you start thinking about what's smart, right? And your game plan changes. And then about five years ago, um, uh, Joe and John Schmidt, Deb Schmidt's sons, they challenged me to run a half marathon. And you know what my goal is when I ran it? I wanted to finish without walking. Praise God, I did it, right? But then Anya's brother, he does ultras, like 50 and 100 milers. And I know a couple of friends here in Port that are going beyond that. And you know what they're telling me? I want to finish without injury. That's their goal. I want to finish without injury. It's so long, they stop, eat a meal, go to the bathroom, take a nap, and go run. Now, I know some of you are like, what? But this is what they do, and they find out the human body is amazing. 
God has built us for so much more than we think. And we see it by the, the, the feats and the things that people do in these things. In the same way, through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit within, you as a believer in Christ were designed with endurance in mind. There are many of you terrified of a half, quarter mile or a half mile spiritual run. Guys, here God has in store for the believer in Christ the perseverance is that every one of us through the power of Christ were called to spiritually ultra marathons. Every one of us have a spiritual resistance muscle by his power to endure through hard things. Most of us haven't fixed our eyes on him and haven't exercised that faith muscle to realize that he's designed us through his power to run a race of perseverance. So endurance in a race is the picture for the Christian life, and we have to throw off this culturally lazy, weird, faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper concept to our faith, that it's a race of endurance, and don't be surprised when endurance is needed in your faith journey. Which leads us to our last point we're going to see in verses 2 and 3. But just a quick moment. Would you consider your spiritual faith weary? Just consider that right now. And if it's not today, think back to a time where you were weary in your faith. I'm going to be honest with you guys. We just sold our house up north this last week. We're thankful for it, right? But it's been nine months of just hoping it would close and trusting the Lord for that. And in this season of our family living in borrowed spaces and part suitcase, part closet, and all our stuff's in storage, Annie and I have had seasons of weariness of like, is this ever going to end, Lord? And in that moment of weariness, I notice where my eyes are. My eyes are on circumstances. And I'm willing to bet for you, if you're in a season of weariness, or you look back in that season of weariness, notice where your eyes were. Verses 2 and 3 tells us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So there we have it. Our final point, fixing our eyes on Jesus is God's plan to keep us from spiritual weariness in this faith journey. Why Jesus? Because it's the Sunday school answer, right? I'm joking. If you look at the text, why Jesus? Because he's the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The word pioneer, some of your translations will say author, founder, the source from whom our faith derives. It originated in his heart and it was developed in his mind and it was birthed from Jesus and it says he's the perfecter or finisher. So he not only authored or wrote it, but he lived it and he lived this idea of faith perfectly. In fact... Scripture teaches that he trusted the Father all the way to the cross. We know when he prayed in the garden, he was praying, Father, please take this cup from me. 
but not my will, but yours be done. I don't know about you, I'm very thankful that Jesus not only started this idea of faith, but he lived it, and he lived it all the way to the cross. That's what we can be thankful for. So verse 3 says, this whole mission was opposed by sinners, and we know who are sinners, all mankind and Satan himself, and yet he endured and stuck with it. So do you have a weary heart of faith? If you do, I don't say this lightly, fix your eyes on Jesus and not circumstances. If you find that you're weary and you're looking at circumstances, don't be surprised because you were never meant to find hope and strength from circumstances. If things are going well for you and your spirit is up and you're encouraged, I want to caution you because you were never meant to find hope and to keep yourself from being weary from circumstances. We are called in good and in bad to keep our eyes on the Lord. You have a loss of heart. Maybe the wind is out of your sails. Fixing your eyes on him who lived this life of faith perfectly is the cure for a weary heart. So I do a quick review for you. Hebrews 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and, and, and certain of what we do not see. And I want to just kind of, in case you have forgotten or missed out on some of the fill-ins, we've got to remember that there is nothing new or historically unusual in your faith journey. Now you say, well, Seth, you don't know my faith journey. I'm telling you, the reason God gave us the book of uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews is to help you understand there's nothing new in our faith journey. And we're surrounded by many who have gone before us. We're not alone. Number two, We have to actively rid our lives of sin and flesh in this faith journey. There is no neutral ground. There is no coasting. If you're not actively ridding, you are filling. That is a reality. Thirdly, endurance is the continual mindset. We have to keep that the Christian life is a race of endurance. We have to keep the end in mind as we're daily living this love-trust relationship. It's always the end in mind that we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And then lastly, God's cure for our weary heart in this life of faith is fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is our hope of salvation. He also lived faith perfectly all the way to the cross. So I want to encourage you with this. You're not alone. As weird and bizarre as this is, as you read these things, it's meant to let you know in this journey of faith that you're not alone. He's got something planned. Throw off the sin. Put perseverance in mind. And this whole journey, don't look at people. Fix your eyes on the Lord. And that's what we're called to. These are the common thread. This is faith, real and simple. And they're not easy answers in some of these things. But when we fix our eyes on the Lord, we can have a heart that's not weary, but hopeful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, 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 and again, and again, we go back to it because it is the, it's life. We recognize that the world itself does not offer us life. And Lord, um, in this journey of faith that we all are on, who have come to Jesus, Lord, we recognize that this thing called faith is a weird thing. We can't see it. We're trying to learn it. 
We oftentimes feel like preschoolers trying to understand it. And Lord, please forgive us for the judgmental attitudes we've had with others as they try to grow and wrestle and follow you in faith. But Lord, help us as a church family to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to have a heart of humility, Lord Jesus, that you endured the scorn and the shame of the cross, that you originated our faith and you perfected it and you lived it perfectly all the way to the cross. Help us to keep that in mind as we humbly seek to submit to you and live by faith. We love you. We're thankful for this journey. And I pray a special um, prayer just for those who are struggling right now.